0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus Staden. this time not in Johannesburg, but over here in Asia, in China, in fact, in Beijing. A very good evening to you, Kobus. Good evening. Kobus, when we talk about the one belt, one road, that's this ambitious, multi-multi-billion, even trillion-dollar global infrastructure plan and trading uh, ambition for the Chinese. It's a huge thing. In fact, it's so big that a lot of people can't even get their minds around what's happening. But it's this idea that the Chinese are building these trading routes that will extend around the tip of South Asia and India, across the Indian Ocean, up the coast of of Eastern Africa, through the Suez Canal into Central Asia and then all the way back to China. It's a massive undertaking. People are talking about that it will cost between one and five trillion dollars. And what's exciting is that along the way, uh, billions of dollars, an estimate out the other week uh, said there was $250 billion of infrastructure that's already been built. And we're seeing that in places like Africa, in Kenya and Djibouti, uh, certainly in Egypt. Uh, so it's really a big thing. But there is a downside to it, Cobus. That is something that came as a little bit of a surprise to hear about.
1: Yes, the, 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 it raises a lot of issues, um, and it particularly raises issues for Africa, because Africa is so dependent on Chinese infrastructure, um, and Africa is very enthusiastic about the idea of getting more infrastructure. The, it raises the specter of what the impact is going to be on African economies. So the, we, in the past, we've discussed the possible impacts of debt. Um, but what I think is, is even more important is what's going to be the, the wider, you know, impact on, on Africa's entire um, economic development and, and development agenda.
0: And Gobus, that question of African infrastructure is essential here because the estimates run as high as a trillion dollars for what African economies are going to need over the next 10 years. Everything from roads to bridges to ports, airports, telecommunications, the dire need for infrastructure uh, is just, you can't actually express it. So where will that money come from? It's not going to come from the United States. We know that the Trump administration is doing everything in its power to cut back on uh, on foreign aid. The Europeans are pulling up the drawbridge in many respects for their foreign aid development. Angela Merkel, in fact, has a, has a bill out trying to militarize somewhere around 25% of her aid budget for Africa. Uh, so they're, they're trying to kind of convert that into military uh, spending. So, the idea here that it's going to come from the traditional donors like the IMF and the World Bank and in Europeans and Americans, uh, that's fading. That's no longer going to be the case. The one country that does have the cash and is spending that cash is China. But at the same time, it is also a problematic issue for Africa when so much cash is coming in. And that's why it was so interesting for us to see an article that came out uh, a couple of weeks ago that we crossed our path over on the conversation. Why China's audacious building plans could be a major strain on African economies. The article was written by Ricardo Robredo, who's a PhD candidate in geography at Trinity College in Dublin, and we are thrilled to have Ricardo join us for the very first time on the show from Johannesburg, where he is currently doing research on Chinese mega projects in South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Ricardo.
2: Good afternoon, guys. Thanks for having me on the pod. It is a
0: fantastic opportunity to have you on because you are saying something of a contrarian voice here because all we can see from our vantage point is African leaders, one after another, heading to Beijing uh, with hat in hand, asking for cash, lots of cash, getting it in many cases, and the building boom across the continent uh, is underway, and a lot of people are very excited about it. Now, let's put the debt issue aside. What we can say definitively, is that the roads, bridges, rail lines that are being built in Kenya, Djibouti, the military bases there, all of that is desperately needed. So make your case as to why you think there's
2: a downside to this. So essentially, in Africa, One belt, One Road, beyond nebulous ideas like increased cooperation and collaboration, which... I mean, they certainly have a political and corporate validity. In physical terms, it's going to be comprised of major infrastructural developments and the relocation of some industrial capacity and in manufacturing from China to Africa. The problem is that without proper care, supervision, or action by host countries, these sorts of projects constrain government resources and exacerbate inequality. Now, I want to say it's not China's fault, but it's the nature of the developments themselves, these mega projects. So, there's been some great research done where worldwide 90% of mega projects have cost overruns and overruns of 50% or more are very common. Uh, this is a problem in both public and private projects and overruns have stayed consistent worldwide for about 70 years. So it can be a very dangerous road to go down to try to create these conditions of economic success via mega project construction. Since investing in unproductive projects typically results in a boom at first while construction is ongoing, but it's followed by a bust when benefits don't materialize. Now, in the, in the paper, I argued that if the projects follow an extractive paradigm, uh, essentially just kind of shipping capital out of the country and shipping resources, you don't necessarily create sustainable broad-based economic growth anyway. So then you're left with just the downsides.
1: So, to, to which extent do you think it is only going to be an extractive process? Because it seems to me, in the last while, there's been uh, there's been a lot of talk coming out of China about the possibilities of Africa as a market, um, and some of the some of the developments of infrastructure has been linked to that. So this there was this kind of underlying logic that look, Africa is the only actual real sizable emerging market left in the world. It's the only place where people are going to be super hungry for cell phones and jeans for the foreseeable future, um, and in order to to tap that market, there's certain certain uh, you know infrastructural um, you know additions. If you make them, then you you stand in a good position to start to start making money out of this market. So, do do you not foresee that logic actually running under some of some of these improvements? No, it
2: could certainly work. I mean, like we've said, Africa definitely needs the infrastructure, right? Um, the problem is that African leaders have generally not been able to change the structural basis of their economies, right? So they're may, they're still very dependent on resource export, like primary exports and importing higher value-added products. Um, and when you – I wrote about this in the paper so that it over may open up African markets to cheap Chinese goods, right? So it it can have a, a – it can – cause problems in the industrialization strategies for African countries. Like Ethiopia is a good example of a country that's using Chinese investment and rapidly industrializing. So their manufacturing output, I think it's gone up about 15% a year for the last five years or so. But in Zambia, we see the exact opposite. So they're experiencing intense deindustrialization. Their textiles and their leather output, I think uh, the data is from like 2014, but it's still... Pretty, pretty much the same. It's only 3% of what it had been in 1985.
0: So the question here is not whether it's an African issue, but it's a country by country issue. And I, let's kind of take it down to the policymaking level. If you're, say, in the administration of President Uru Kenyatta in Kenya, for example, what's your choice? You need to modernize your infrastructure. You need to get better ports, better railways, better hospitals, all of that. And where does that money come from? And what's the choice that you have? I mean, it's It's great for academics to kind of think about this, but in very practical terms, if the opportunity is there for low-interest loans and the opportunity is there, maybe a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to take advantage of this cash that's coming through with no strings attached, incidentally, unlike Western Aid, um, what do you do as a policymaker in a place like Kenya?
2: No, I agree with you that it's a great opportunity. But it needs to be managed well. Now, you know, it's easy for me to say this, and government is difficult, and there's a lot of things that they need to, to get right. But, like, for instance, let's take the Standard Gauge Railway as an example, right? So um, this was funded by – I forgot which Chinese bank – but the, the Kerry Institute did a great, like, project on it. So essentially they found that the Chinese company responsible for construction didn't sufficiently consult with the stakeholders before starting the project – so, land wasn't scattered well enough, and the budget for land compensation doubled right There's also this tendency among politicians to kind of use these projects for political capital and there's There's always problems in the labor arena like these are just things you have to watch out for when you implement the projects right like these you need to you need to account for all of these issues before saying, "Yeah, let's do it. show me the money." you know.
1: Um, I, I wonder. I want to move us a, a little bit in the direction of, of capital uh, outflows. So, you, you make the point that you know, a lot of the logic of the Belt and Road um, initiative has to do with the with with the the transformation of the Chinese economy um, and the move away from a, from an export uh, based manufacturing economy. Um, at the same time, so, 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 so there is this need for Chinese companies to go out, and they have been, you know, for decades, and and this is a, to a certain extent can be read as a as a new chapter in that story. Um, but at the same time, the the Chinese government has increasingly been cracking down on capital outflows, um, and so there's a, there's been a lot of uh, this kind of flurry of reporting about, you know. About new new um, limits on capital outflows and and new scrutiny being put on external projects. So how do you think those two are going to be balanced? It seems they seem to in complete contradiction to. Me.
2: Yeah, I was actually speaking with uh, another China Africa scholar yesterday, and she was mentioning that if you if you talk about uh, One Belt One Road, it's much easier to get approval for your project. So I think. It is an umbrella project, right? So these things like we've seen with Go Out or Go West or even going back to kind of the latter step program that Deng Xiaoping instituted, it's, it's always a hybrid nebulous process within the Chinese government itself. But I think anything associated with One Belt, One Road will, will go further. So why do African governments
0: take on these loans if, as you say, um, they run over in costs? Uh, Howard French, who is the author of uh, a number of China-Africa books, when we interviewed him a couple years ago, he he too brought up the issue of the Standard Gauge Railway and said that Kenyans could have gotten a better deal by going through some of the multilateral institutions. And it always got me thinking, okay, if that's in fact the case, then why are they going back to the Chinese
2: Time and time again when in fact, they may not actually be the cheapest It might be the thing is I don't see that much of a difference between World Bank projects and these Chinese projects the the issue here is that the projects themselves have a tendency to run over over budget every single time See so it's not necessarily the Chinese. There's a there's a guy who does great work. His name is bent flyberg so he he has a, a formula for mega project approval, which holds for World Bank projects, for Chinese projects, pretty much anybody. Basically underestimate costs, overestimate revenues, undervalue the environmental and social impacts and overvalue the wider economic developments. And that's how you win project approval. So it seems to me as though the problem here isn't China. China's just offering. It's up to the African governments to make sure that it all works for them.
0: Kobus, this brings up the interesting point that we've been talking about for a long time. Yeah. We've been talking about governance, and time and time and time again, it comes back down to African governments' governance. This is not a, a you, you know, as Ricardo just pointed out, it's not a question of the Chinese. The same would be true of the French, the Americans, the United Nations, the World Bank. So the burden really is on President Kenyatta in Kenya. It's on you know. It's obviously on the South African administration and Jacob Zuma. It's that governance question that keeps coming back again. And if we don't actually improve African government governance, none of this is going to get better. You
1: know, I think in this moment, particularly, it's particularly in relation to, in relation to the, the governance of tenders. Um, and the kind of criteria that African governments put out for tenders um, <clears throat> there's been uh, you know several allegations of of these big projects that they, that African governments were either overcharged or that in some cases they went for not necessarily the lowest bidder um, so that you know needs to be really you know a lot needs to be made of that. The issue I think then becomes is how to crack down on that and you know which which kind of um, mechanisms to to put in place to actually hold that government to account. Um, you know that that I think is is I mean that's hard to do in the first world um, or then the developed world. You know it's, and it's, it's particularly hard to do in the, you know in, in countries where with um, with such um, you know, kind of broken down systems as you see in Africa frequently. So, so that is a difficult issue. Um, I was wondering if you could advise African governments on how to get the best deal out of a Belt and Road mega project. Um, what could you advise them? Like what is like, the top three things? What should, they, what should they implement?
2: I think one of the main problems is that, so China, as we all know, kind of works bilaterally, right? There needs to be a little bit more regional integration, because like I said in the in the paper, there are projects that African African countries already wish to prioritize. So here I was kind of referring to like Lapsit and projects of that ilk. Well, I'm sorry, um, I'm sorry, i sorry, what think, is
0: Lapsit?
2: So Lapsit is essentially a development corridor that stretches from Cameroon to uh, Kenya, basically. That's that's the goal right now. It's an East African project. So there are I think four mega projects that the Kenyan government has prioritized to to kind of serve to help laps to take off. These are the three the first three bursts of the Lamu port, the uh, garden ro- or sorry, a road from Lamu to Garson and then an oil pipeline which is being built. Um, these projects need to be prioritized and African countries I feel like would be better served to kind of create an economic block to deal with China. There's a great quote by, I think, Ian Taylor, who says that China China has an Africa policy, but Africa doesn't necessarily have a China policy.
0: It's always been the dream of pan-Africanists that there would be regional cooperation. Um, we've seen yeah. some hints of it in ECOWAS in West Africa, the East African community, obviously in East Africa, some of the, the Southern African development community, but it's never really taken off. In some ways, it reminds me of what it's like out here in Asia, where there is no regional grouping. There is no... You know, with any teeth, ASEAN, of course, doesn't have any teeth. Uh, so it's been this dream that countries should work together and develop a, a coherent China policy, but that's really never going to happen, isn't it? I mean, these no. countries are so factionalized politically internally, much less aligning themselves internationally, just doesn't seem feasible. So, given that, that's the reality. What are but, we looking uh, at ahead?
1: I mean, one one of one of the one of the ironies is that. That one form of actual potential, actual regional integration in East Africa is the standard gauge railway itself. You know, because yeah. it is like it is eventually supposed to be running across all of these borders, and just for the first time to be able to, you know, to, to economically integrate a region that, that is so fractured in other ways. Um, and to pull countries as different as Burundi and Kenya into, into a, you know, one coherent system where people can actually get on train and travel from one to the other. So in theory, the standard gauge railway is weirdly both the problem and the solution.
2: Yeah, I would say so. Uh, it definitely helps with regional connectivity. And if you look at that and then the, what was the railway network in Ethiopia that goes through, to through Djibouti? Djibouti, that-
1: yeah, yeah the, the the link to Djibouti, yes. The, the, I mean That's... that that has a very similar kind of effect, you know, where, where it links, yeah. it, it it makes these economic links that that suddenly opens up a whole bunch of of options. As a scholar, right, yeah.
0: as a scholar of mega projects, uh, particularly in a part of the world that is not known for its transparency and ethical governance, what role does corruption play in all of this? The Chinese are, are particularly well known for being opaque in their dealings with with foreign governments and international aid in these mega projects. Uh, back when I was living in the DR Congo, there was word that Joseph Kabila himself pocketed somewhere around 300 or 350 million dollars off the sycamines deal. Uh, and so it brings up this question of corruption from both on the Chinese part and obviously on the African
2: part. Yeah, corruption is definitely a problem, especially in these larger projects, right, where money can just kind of disappear. And it's it's actually a very difficult area to study, as a scholar, uh, because there's just it's it's difficult to get the correct interviews. It's difficult to get the correct, um, you know, perspectives on that. But especially in the larger port, like let's say port sites, these areas of trade, millions of dollars are lost every single year, due to corruption and due to people taking a little bit off the top here and there.
1: So you're in South Africa doing research about, about mega-projects. Um, I've seen in, in you know the discussion about Belt and Road issues in Africa that every single country is now jumping on Belt and Road um, bandwagon. And I've seen it you know, mentioned in development plans for countries that are far off the Belt and Road uh, route. To which extent are any of the South African or if if any of the South African ones are on on that list, I so, you know I was wondering whether they are. in the second place, um, how are Belton Road mega projects different from other Chinese mega projects in Africa? Is there a, a substantive difference?
2: Well, it's that's an interesting question. You see, because so in the last FOCAC meeting, FOCAC six here in Johannesburg, the South African government signed a memorandum of understanding with China it was one of these very political ones where they were essentially agreeing to cooperate and enhance their linkages and uh, talk about belt and road and kind of promote it right Uh, but it's it's strange because most of the projects that i've done research on here they work within existing frameworks so like the, the south african environment is somewhat unique where the chinese for even though they have some of the best construction companies in the world they have to work with the companies here because they're well-established and they understand kind of the nuances of the legislative environment here. And if they don't, then the project can easily fall apart. Like I've seen several projects where everything was agreed upon and then they just didn't quite understand the context they were working in and they lost investors and everything fell apart. And there's actually a very interesting story in the paper a couple days ago. There's a big uh, rail development here that's very needed. It's up in the Mulatto Road because um, that, that's a very dangerous road. So they're essentially trying to build a rail network to get people from uh, around that part of the country. But they were going to get the money from the China Exim Bank. But Exim Bank required them to go through the China Communications Construction Company, which apparently is illegal under the South African Constitution. All right, So essentially the government officials said that PRASA, the, the transit agency, I think, and the water department were intent on doing things in a way that would bypass South African procurement laws. So it's interesting to see where these projects go, whereas I feel like in other parts of Africa, it's a much easier environment to work and to establish these projects.
0: So let's get to the bottom line. Obviously, there's a huge risk for African governments to be taking on massive amounts of debt to be building infrastructure projects that may not be well-suited for them, that may be in the interest of the Chinese but not actually in the interest of African governments. Cost overruns present uh, tremendous problems, both politically at home but also obviously to the finances of the, of the host country. Um, so what's the bottom line? What, what, what are we supposed to take away from what you're saying here in terms of what's the future look for in terms of these types of mega projects? Should African governments be continuing to do it? should they be turning away some of the chinese money what do you what's
2: your prognosis this is a great opportunity for african countries but they need to be very careful in managing the money and managing the way that these projects are built they need to learn from examples all over the world not just in africa that mega projects can be very dangerous for economies and that they should look they should find a way to magnify their industrial bases to leverage the money into their own economies without having them turn into white elephants that only benefit the Chinese or whoever is building them and extract resources and extract capital from these countries.
0: Why China's audacious building plans could be a major strain on African economies. Uh, that's the article. You can find it over at theconversation.com. It's written by Ricardo Ribeiro, who's a PhD candidate in geography at Trinity College in Dublin, who's doing also research right now on Chinese mega projects in South Africa and really writing a contrarian point of view here uh, on Obor, the One Belt, One Road, which we've heard so much about. And the cash is just flowing out of China into Africa. And there's a lot of excitement around it. But yet, there is obviously some reasons to be concerned about that. Ricardo, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we really appreciate your time today.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me, guys. Really appreciate it.
0: If people want to follow what you are reading and writing, are you on social media?
2: I do. I actually just made a Twitter the other day. It's Ricardo Revereto. It's it's Twitter.com slash Rick underscore reveretto. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. All right. Thank you. So Cobus, I don't know how I feel
0: about this. On the one hand, um, I totally get what he's saying. I totally get what Ricardo, I respect it. I think that there is a lot of reason to be concerned. We've talked to uh, international development economists like Ansetsi Ware in, in Kenya, who also warned of a looming Chinese-fueled debt crisis in Africa, much of it on the backs of this infrastructure. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you stare out across the horizon in Africa, and, and pretty much up and down the continent, and you see a desperate need for infrastructure, and there are the Chinese willing to put out the cash. Uh, But it does seem to fuel corruption. It does seem to fuel cost overruns. Uh, So there is really a downside to what is potentially a desperately needed infrastructure upgrade.
1: The thing I think that's not said frequently enough is that there's a massive downside to not taking the deal. And that downside isn't only not having infrastructure. It is entrenching... Systemic underdevelopment, and that means essentially buying yourself decades and decades of social unrest, of more corruption, because underdevelopment brings more corruption, um, of you know of, of just all of the of the country sliding down a hill. Um, so I think I think the African leaders are making a kind of a hard-nosed gamble where they're deciding, look. We're going to take this risk, and hopefully it'll pay off in economic growth, and here we go. Um, you know, as you say, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity.
0: It is, and but again, I think this is where we run into problems using the word Africa, uh, in part because there is no Africa here. Uh, as yeah. Ricardo pointed out, Ethiopia seems to be having a much more coherent China policy in leveraging its industrial strength and really applying Chinese infrastructure money for economic development, whereas Zambia, in many cases, is wasting that opportunity, uh, where they're not taking advantage of of the infrastructure investment by the Chinese or by others, in fact. And that governance question keeps coming up. Certainly, the Congo is is just a basket case over and over again. So what countries are doing varies greatly. And I think this is where we have to bring in some caution.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And it, it, as we say over and over again, it comes down to African governance. If Africa doesn't make these rules to protect itself, no one else is going to do it. Um, and you know, the 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 question is how Africa should make these rules and how they should enforce it.
0: Well, this is another insight on the One Belt One Road. I, you know, sitting here in China we can see uh, the story from a very different point of view. The Chinese mean business here. This is a game-changing geopolitical event that I think is poorly understood in the West and not respected for the scale, in part because... I think many people in the United States and Europe still feel that these types of mega projects uh, were once their domain, once their province. Uh, no more. The Chinese are spending money in a way that nobody else is doing right now. Uh, this is Marshall Plan level of spending here. and uh, But it's got a lot of facets to it. It's complicated. Uh, no one really believes the hype about One Belt, One Road. I'm not even sure if the Chinese believe the hype about it. Uh, but at the end of the day, it is important at whatever scale. Hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars are being spent. Some of that is being done in Africa. So it is shaping at least the face of politics in East Africa. And it's a story that we're going to continue to follow in the months and weeks ahead. So that'll do it for this edition of the China and Africa podcast. Kobus is in Beijing. He'll be back in Johannesburg the next time we speak next week. Uh, But for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for joining us